I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. You're listening to Crime Scene Today. We talk about current and future issues affecting law enforcement, forensics, and crime scene investigations. I'm your host, Dan Zentek. Today I'd like to talk to you about the many aspects of crime scene photography. It's one of the things that I have a expertise in that discipline. So the other day my dad called and said that uh, he had a bunch of boxes. And I went over, I picked up these boxes, there were about eight or nine of them, and I brought them to the house. Many of them contained photos. I'd gotten into photography a while back and I'll tell you that story in a second. But the one thing that stood out as I went through these boxes, there are many photos, some of them that I had taken, some of them just from previous years. And as I went through these photos, of course they brought back many memories of, you know, growing up in my childhood and different things that happened throughout my life. Many of the photos that were taken were scenic and places that I'd been, and that certainly brought back memories. But the ones that seemed to stick out, the ones that we shared and passed around and told the biggest stories were of the people in our lives. They were relatives, they were friends, they were people that at some point in our life had been important and had made an impact. And it just shows the importance of photography in general. And so one thing that I talk about when I teach classes on photography, out of all the disciplines, bloodstain, shooting, reconstruction, it is the one discipline that goes beyond law enforcement. It goes beyond crime scene and it affects our personal lives so that we can actually enjoy and have a part of documenting things that are we're passionate about, things that we enjoy doing, whether it is sports hunting, family gatherings, whatever is important to us for us to document that we will experience later on. You know, in going through the photos, I found many older photos that made me realize how long I'd been doing photography. And to give you an idea as far as how I started, it wasn't in childhood. My dad was into photography, but it wasn't something that I shared with him. He didn't pass it on to me. I had grown up with numerous photography magazines around the house, and it was something my dad really enjoyed. But I didn't get started until it was crime scene. I was working for Harris County, and at that time, if you wanted to document fatality accidents and a little bit more than just your typical crime scene photos of family violence and stuff, then you had to go through a couple of classes, which I did. At that time, we went to the Houston Police Department, and there were three different classes that they put on. You had a basic, advanced, and a low-light class, and that pretty much covered the basics of what you needed at that time to, to shoot crime scene photography. My first camera was not supplied to me by the department. I went and bought my first camera, and of course, it was just whatever was on sale at the time. I had to learn on my own, and I paid for my classes, and actually had to take vacation time to attend many of those. 
But after attending the classes, I just developed a passion for it and really enjoyed it. And the first book that I bought, and I still pass on to students, because it's actually pretty cheap these days, was The Idiot's Guide to Pro Photography. I think right now you can get on Amazon for like five cents used and pay $3 shipping and handling. But it had the basics. It had aperture. It had your depth of field and the different aspects of photography that when I took a class, it just reinforced the lessons that I had learned. Now, when I started shooting crime scenes, I was assigned a night shift, and that was a challenge in and of itself because it wasn't until two or three classes in before they started teaching you how to do any type of nighttime photography. And when I started was the late 90s. We were still shooting film, so it wasn't like you just take the picture and look at the back of the camera and see how it turned out. It came from practice over and over and over to finally learn my settings and majority of what I was shooting at that time was fatality accidents. I had not realized as I started on this adventure of taking photos how much effect it would have on my life and how much of it would play a factor in the future of things that I would do. As soon as I started getting a passion for wanting to learn more about photography. I went to local community college uh, down here in Harris County, which was uh, called North Harris Community College. Now it's called Lone Star. And I took college classes of Photography 1 and Photography 2. Both those had to deal with black and white photography and working in the dark room and something I had never done before. It was something that, again, helped me develop an eye for photography and just to learn more about what was happening uh, when I was shooting the photo and how to process it and those things. So, again, I wanted to learn more about it. So the next place that I turned was a place called, uh, it was Photoshop User, and uh, it was by Scott Kelby. And he had had this group for a while called the Photoshop Guys. And this was before YouTube. This was before you go on the internet and just find stuff for free on a regular basis. So you had to go out and either attend some of these classes. And one of the big, biggest events that they would put on was called Photoshop World. Even to this day, I still have yet to go to Photoshop World. Uh, and it sort of died down throughout the years as things have become more readily available on YouTube and other free places just to to get that information. But what Photoshop user was, was a magazine that would come out and they would also do podcasts and they would do uh, videos, how-to videos, and then they would do live training where they came to Houston and you would spend the day for eight hours learning how to do Photoshop and different photo shoots and things like that from people that were uh, world known for their talents and techniques on doing this and some of the guys that stood out uh, were scott kelby and rc concepcion those are ones that were sort of ahead of the game as far as uh training people and teaching people how to to use photoshop and when lightroom came out and just the different aspects of photography and the one thing that i enjoyed about it and something that i carried on later when i started teaching was it was very down to earth. It was very basic. It wasn't technical. It wasn't speaking so high that others could not understand it. It was with the aspect that anyone who takes time can learn this. It's not hard. It's just something that sometimes the terminology throws people off. Sometimes just the fact that it's turned into a computer on the back of the camera that it seems to 
put up a, a block for some people and getting them over that block and just learning how to do uh, basic concepts of photography and some of the amazing people that I've met along the way. So, you know, speaking of amazing people that I met along the way, you know, I just mentioned R.C. Concepcion, and he is amazing uh, at what he does. And he has a website it's called aboutrc.com, and he was one of the Photoshop guys. He uh, worked for uh, Kelby One and Photoshop user. Uh, since then, he's gone on to, to teach at a uh, university and share his knowledge and passion uh, there. But I got an opportunity to meet R.C., and I'll tell you a little bit about that story. So Christy and I had seen that R.C. was going to be teaching in Austin, Texas, which is only about two and a half hours from the Houston area, and we wanted to go see him live. Now, Christy would later become my wife, and she I also met through photography, but that's a story for another time. When we got to Austin, R.C. had sent a message out, and I can't even remember how he did it because I don't think Twitter was around back then, and I don't think Facebook was popular. Maybe it was on MySpace or something. Uh, Maybe it was on Facebook. But we got the message that he had never been to Texas, and if there were any places that he should go and visit, places he should go shoot while he was down. We sent him a quick message and said, hey, we're coming to town early. If you want to go out shooting with us, we're going to go and shoot around uh, the state capitol. Within an hour, we got a response back from RC with a cell phone saying that uh, he would love to come shoot with us. And he would let us know uh, whenever he had landed, whenever he was available. Now, this is pretty exciting news considering that we thought very highly of RC. And he'd been teaching all around the world. The next day, I mean, we had paid money to sit in a classroom of probably about 500, 600 people to hear this person talk and give us tips and understanding of photography. And here we are. We're going to go and, and shoot in a very small photo uh, group and just uh, go around and, and have a good time. And that's exactly what happened. When... We arrived in Austin. Uh, We reached out to RC, and we ended up meeting up, and it was actually a a rainy night. Uh, But we still headed out, and we headed over to the Capitol. An interesting story that came out of that. So as a police officer, I had gone up, and I talked to one of the Capitol Police, and it was decently late, and I know that they were about to start shutting things down. And I'd asked if it was possible for us to take a couple of photos inside the Capitol. The police officer had told us that uh, they were about to shut down, and would it be possible for us to come back tomorrow? And I expressed that RC had never been to Texas, and that tomorrow he'd be teaching a class, and he was on a plane to leave here. And the Capitol Police officer told me, he says, well, it wouldn't be right for someone to get, come all the way to Texas and not be able to see the Capitol. So he let us in, and he walked us around. And then as he was walking us around a little bit, he turned and said, would you like to make my rounds with me? Which I didn't know what that meant, but sure, we'll, we'll come and join you on your rounds. So we shot a couple of the very typical photos that you would see inside the Capitol. As we were going on his rounds, what that meant was check areas that were 
pretty much off limits to the public. We start up this staircase that I promise was never OSHA approved. It, I don't know how many years it's been there, very old, but we go up this staircase and where we're going is to the top of the Capitol. When you go into the Texas Capitol and you look up, you see the star and it looks very small, but it's actually a huge star at the top of the Capitol. And that's where we were going. As we steadily went up this staircase and we got to the top of the rotunda, you actually could reach out and touch the star. That's how high we were up as far as the top of this Capitol. The next thing that we got to do was we got to go outside at this level. If you ever look at the state Capitol, uh, you'll see that there's a balcony up there. It's not one that people go out on, except for, I guess, the Capitol Police when they're doing their rounds. So we step out here, and now we're overlooking the city of Austin. We're looking the main Congress Avenue that drives up to the Capitol. It was a little overcast, but we were still able to get some amazing shots from the top of the Capitol. Then we go back down the staircase, and we got some amazing shots, and RC got some amazing shots that most of the public don't get an opportunity to see. But more importantly, we got an opportunity to take photos of each other and share times with one another and have a great story when it was all over. I was surprised a few years later when RC had written a book on HDR photography. And the story that I just told you about Christy and I going out to shoot around the Austin Capitol was actually in that book. Now, speaking of different people that we had gotten to meet along the way, and it was in the same trip, the next day we were in RC's class. We went up and talked to him before class, and he introduced me to a person named Trey, and that's all I knew him by. It was Trey Radcliffe, and I didn't know much of him, but he... Trey asked me if I knew much about HDR photography, and at that point, it really wasn't that big. I didn't know much about it, but Trey told me that he was into it. He sort of explained it to me, and what I didn't realize that Trey, Trey Radcliffe, who was out of Austin, Texas, and who has a website called stuckincustoms.com, was one of the leading photographers in HDR photography. And he had traveled all over the world taking HDR photography, and he still does to this day. And on his website, he showed how to use the standard at that time, which was photomatics, on how to combine photos of different tonal ranges. In a basic explanation of HDR, if you're unfamiliar with the process, and it has become more popular in crime scene photography when trying to get specific details. It's used a great deal in real estate photography and where you want to show maybe a picture of an interior kitchen, a family room that overlooks out to a pool area. Well, the outside is exposed one way and the interior is exposed another way. In one shot, it's next to impossible to get that exposure. That exposure range of a proper exposure inside and a proper exposure outside is not capable of one shot. And what HDR does, which is high dynamic range, is it takes those different photos. It takes one of a proper exposure inside, a proper exposure outside, all of the highlights and all the shadows, and it uses a program to combine multiple photos together 
And at this point is really up to the photographer on how this photo is supposed to look. There are many photographers that take this to the extreme and it looks more of this artistic style to the photo. And then there's others that they just use it for photorealism where it looks the way that it was intended to look while they were there. When I teach, I talk about HDR photography in one of our advanced courses. And one of the purposes in that and the example I give we had an officer involved shooting one time in which the suspect had pulled their car under a street lamp and then ran from the officer and the officer chases them into this darkness and in the darkness they fight and at one point during the fight the suspect goes to grab the officer's gun he'd already beaten the officer Uh, And the officer had a moment to pull the gun away, fire, and he ended up killing the suspect. So everyone that deals with law enforcement in these types of investigations knows the details and how much work is going to go into an officer-involved shooting to make sure that everything was done right. Uh, Because this is going to grand jury, and most likely it will probably face a civil lawsuit later. So we're going to make sure that everything is done that we can do to show all the evidence possible. And one of the things in this particular scene that we're trying to show is what witnesses could see. Witnesses could see by the car. They could see under the street lamp. But where the officer had run was completely pitch black. To try to capture an image that we're able to show the pitch black area where the officer was and the streetlight, which what it was properly illuminating, is a perfect opportunity to use HDR. So here I was in Austin talking to RC, talking to Trey, and getting to learn as HDR was sort of starting to take off in not only Uh, photography but it was starting to take off in crime scene photography being used again to show different lighting aspects to bring out an enhancement of detail in prints tire shoe impressions and those type of things now hdr was really nothing new it was something that i looked at a little further and found that the first time i could find that hdr was used was actually to photograph the testing of the first nuclear bomb time magazine had used different isos of film to capture the many variations of dynamic range to put together a photo to show the testing Now that was back in film and digital it's certainly much easier because we're not dealing with a dark room and trying to expose for different variables we now can take and expose for underexposed overexposed correctly exposed in any type of area to get all the shadows and all the highlights and dump that into a program now since that original program there's been numerous other programs that have come out to deal with high dynamic range Some of those uh, are uh, HDR FX. I think Nick Filters has that one. Photomatics is still around. So if it's something that uh, you're looking at, uh, you can try those out. And at this point, there's plenty of YouTube videos out there. But 
Stuck in Customs by Trey Radcliffe is still out there. You can still go to his website, and he has a tutorial on how to use these type of programs, how to do HDR, and he has an amazing portfolio there. RC is still around, and he has written two books on HDR photography, and he has tons of videos out there. He still has some that are on kelby1.com. Kelby One is still a service that uh, you have to pay for, and there are other ones out there that uh, you don't. You can still look it up on YouTube, and there's so many resources out there at this point that there weren't before. As I said before, I mean, photography played a big impact on my life, and that impact later was me teaching photography. In 2008, I was approached by uh, the person who was over the Texas A&M Teaks, uh, which is the uh, extension services of Texas A&M that teaches to firefighters and law enforcement, and the Forensic Science Academy, which is run by Christine Ramirez. She asked if I would be interested in teaching Forensic Photography 1 and Forensic Photography 2. In Forensic Photography 1, it's very basic. It's uh, just about your camera and lenses and shutter speed and aperture and depth of field and what to take on a crime scene. On Forensic Photography 2, we get more in-depth with the infrared photography, ultraviolet photography, shooting reconstruction with lasers, and more recently talking about digital uh, imaging, editing, and using post-processing to help on crime scenes. The one thing that I felt was of value as we started these courses was I wanted to make sure that if a crime scene investigator came to this class or a detective that needed to have forensic photography skills, that they weren't stuck the same way that I was. That they didn't have to take two or three classes to be able to do their job. So besides learning the basics and besides what to take, it was important to me that they learned macro photography, that they learned low light photography. So many times, even in the basic course, we would go out and shoot some nighttime photos just to make sure that they knew how to do those photos when they got back to work, that they were not on night shift having to return and wait for another class to come up. So I thought we would cover a couple of the main questions that I get when I'm teaching. Seem to happen all the time. One of the most common questions that I get is, which one is better, Canon or Nikon? They are both the same. I don't have any preference. Now, I personally shoot Canon, and there's a very simple reason for that. If you remember earlier when I was talking, when I said I had to buy my own equipment, well, I was a cop going into a camera store that knew very little about cameras, I wanted something that was on sale. Well, what was on sale that day in the late 90s when I went into that store was a Canon Elan 2E. It was a film camera. It was what was on sale. That's why I bought a Canon. From that point on, though, as I started learning about photography and enjoying photography, I started buying lenses and I started buying accessories. Well, when you invest a lot of money in lenses, those lenses work from one camera to the next. So now I've invested a lot of money and I have a lot of lenses or what people refer to as glass. So if I wanted to switch over to Nikon now, it would be 
a heavy investment for me to switch it from Canon to Nikon. It's the only reason I shoot Canon. I have very good friends that shoot Nikon and we shoot together and they can hand me their Nikon camera. I can hand them my Canon. They work the same. When you truly think about what photography is, it's a light type box with a hole in it. And depending on how long we leave that hole open and expose the film or the sensor these days to the amount of light that's hitting it is going to turn out a photo. Yes, depending on the type of glass that you have and how the grade of the glass and how sharp the photo is and those type of things, sure, those play a factor. But for every luxury lens that Canon makes, so does Nikon. Now, one that has come up in conversation is Sony. They sort of came in later to the game. Uh, And all I mean by that, I mean Sony's been around forever and they've made tons of video and TVs and all sorts of things. They certainly are not new to the electronics business, but the standard was pretty much Canon or Nikon. And you had some others along the way, Pentax, Minolta, and and others, but the ones that always stood out were Canon and Nikon. Until recently, and I say recently, like in the past maybe six, seven years, Sony came out with their version of the digital SLR and started coming out with the lenses. I think that Sony could have done an amazing job and overtook Canon or Nikon if they would have tried a little bit different business model. And what I mean by that is when Sony first came out, if their lenses would have been a little bit less expensive, meaning that a pro lens for Nikon or Canon is easily $1,500, some of them are $2,000. If Sony would have came in and their lenses would have been $1,000, well, that would have been an incentive for new people coming on to buy a Sony. And for those that wanted to switch from Canon or Nikon, it wouldn't have been as expensive to switch over. But when you're a new user and you're looking at this wide range, Nikon has so many lenses out there. Canon has so many lenses out there. If you're a new kid on the block and all you have is about four or five lenses when you first go into it, why would I have any incentive to go and choose Sony? And that's how it sort of played out for a few years. Now Sony has created numerous lenses. Some people have have joined that. But you have to think of the ones who are buying those $1,000 lenses. It's not your typical consumer. These are your uh, newspaper, your magazine, your sports writers, all those people. Those are the ones that are paying the thousands and thousands of dollars. And sitting on their shelf is either Canon equipment or Nikon equipment, or maybe they even have both. But... I think that's one reason why Sony really has not overtaken, even though they've made an impact. There's nothing that really makes them stand out, at least in my opinion, that would have them jumping ship from Nikon or Canon to go to Sony. I think equally, if you walk into a store today and you want to know which one's the best, they all do the same thing. I think they all do a great job. The only advantage I see Nikon or Canon have over Sony is that they do have more accessories, more lenses that have been out there longer. More importantly, you can probably find some older lenses that still work uh, that Sony, you may have a little bit more difficulty finding that. The next question that comes up is, is film dead? Is there a reason that we have any film cameras anymore? To be honest, as far as crime scene photography is concerned, and certainly our day-to-day photography, I don't know anyone using film anymore. 
there was a time that people had film around because the megapixels were not high enough that the image was not as sharp or that the dynamic range was not as good as film. I think at this point we've reached that. We have certainly gone beyond it with ISO. When I was shooting film, ISO on the camera, as far as the film, uh, we would shoot at best ISO 800, maybe ISO 1600, and that was it. Now you have ISO on these digital cameras that are 3200, 6400, 12,800, and keep on going. They're at a level that film never existed. At this point, it's merely just a computer algorithm that's doubling the sensitivity of the light uh, or the sensor that the light is hitting. So now these cameras are capable of things that film was never capable of. So is there a reason to have a digital SLR or can we just use a phone? That part I can tell you, you still need the digital SLR. You need to be able to take a long exposure on nighttime shots or available light type shots. And especially in crime scene, even though there's phones out there that uh, I think there's a couple that may even be able to shoot in raw by this point, but they talk about their megapixels. And that's one thing that to clarify that I don't want to throw you off. When a camera on a phone says it has 71 megapixels and you have a full frame digital SLR that says it has 25 megapixels. It doesn't mean that the camera on the phone actually is more capable than the camera on the SLR. You need to actually realize what they're talking about. And that is the pixels that are on a sensor or the pixels on a phone. They are a certain size and the size on a digital SLR, the pixels are much larger they have a higher density and store way more information than what's on the phone. Now, I'm not dismissing. You know, I think at the time that we're recording this, the highest iPhone is an iPhone 11 and Samsung has released their 10. And those seem to be the two top brands that are out there for their phones. And iPhone has done an amazing job with their camera. It's still not an SLR. And even though it can take some nighttime shots, and does a pretty good job at many of them, it by no means at this point is replacing a digital SLR for shooting crime scene photos. Now that's not to dismiss that the patrol officer that's out there takes some initial photos of what's happening on that scene. Hopefully most patrol officers have a, a digital point and shoot type of camera that's issued to them, but nearly every officer does have their phone. Some of those initial photos that are taken on a scene can be instrumental later on when trying to recreate what happened and doing a crime scene reconstruction prior to EMS getting there while EMS is working and the disturbances that just happen with the natural processing of a scene when everything is dynamic and active and we're still working on people and clearing things and doing different things. You know, which goes back to the old saying, which is truly the best camera? It's the one you have in your hand. It's the one that's available to you because any photo is better than no photo when we're trying to look at evidence and trying to analyze what was happening at that time. So the latest rage in photography now, I would have to say, is the mirrorless camera. 
And if I had to say there's anything out there that is going to replace the digital SLR, it would be the mirrorless camera. And I, I can't really say that it's replacing the digital SLR because it's still uh, an SLR uh, that it still has changeable lenses. Uh, it still has a sensor. It just doesn't have a mirror. By not having a mirror, we've removed a mechanical part of this, which means that we can possibly speed, speed the shutter up faster than speeds that we've had in the past. Now, some of the digital SLRs are currently up to one eight thousandth of a second, which is amazing in trying to stop motion, uh, should stop a majority of what we're talking about. But as these mirrorless cameras progress, I think that we're going to enter a range in which in the past we had to use high-speed video cameras to stop the bullet going through the apple that we've seen before or stopping liquid dynamics and analyzing those. I think that uh, possibly in the future we'll be able to do this on the mirrorless cameras as they remove the mechanical part and we start going to just computer processing power that is able to get faster and faster. The advancements that I've seen in the mirrorless camera, and this just speaking from uh, more recent current articles that I've read, I know that uh, Canon is currently looking at coming out with, I think it was supposed to be a 100 megapixel full frame mirrorless camera somewhere in the first quarter of 2020 and uh, not saying that Canon is, is doing any better on something. I'm sure that Nikon is right there. It's just that was the most recent article that I read. And pretty much if one does something, the other follows behind pretty quickly. But it appears that both Canon, Nikon, and uh, Sony have started putting their energy and efforts into the advancements into the mirrorless cameras. Even though they're still releasing some of the digital SLRs, they seem to be focusing more on the mirrorless technology that's out there. You know, there was a range uh, in which things changed. And I think we've started flowing back to that people with digital SLRs or mirrorless cameras are into photography. To explain that, there was a time when a lot of amateurs, uh, amateur photographers, it wasn't part of their job, it really wasn't part of uh, just day-to-day -day life, were going and buying cameras, Nikon, Canon, Sony, uh, because they just wanted a better camera to shoot with. And in the past five years, the cameras on our phones have become more advanced. I don't see many people carrying cameras anymore like I used to. One of the disadvantages of having a digital SLR camera, even a mirrorless camera, is that you have to carry a camera with you. You have to think about carrying it. And with the digital SLRs, many of those are heavy. The lenses that you would carry with you, you would need a couple of extra lenses. You would need a flash, all these attachments. It's a thought process. You need to, on purpose, take this camera with you. And many moments in life are not on purpose. They just happen. And for those moments, we have our cell phones. Most of the time, what we're wanting to do in our personal life on our cell phone is to share that with others that care about us and care about the moment and put that out on social media. Now, even though some of the newer cameras, both the digital SLR and the mirrorless are Wi-Fi capable, meaning that they're able to directly communicate with your phone, 
They can take better pictures than your phone. And as soon as you take it, it's on your phone so you can share it. It still goes back to the initial statement. You had to, on purpose, want to take that with you and carry it with you. I don't see as many people buying cameras for just carrying around with them anymore. I don't see them buying point-and-shoot cameras at all. I think that's possibly even a dead market other than maybe for our patrol divisions, for work type of product that they don't want to carry a digital SLR. But the average person that I know uses their phone for most of their photography and most of their video. And that I don't really see changing in the future. I think that the cameras on the phones are also going to get even more advanced. Um, Apple just recently came out with their three lenses on a phone. I have no clue what that's about. I need to look into it further. Most of the things I know just have one lens. I don't know what three lenses does to make it any better. But apparently uh, it has uh, done very well. People really enjoy the photos from it. And I've seen some of the photos. It does an amazing job. So bringing some of this back around, if you're currently evaluating for your crime scene, for your lab, for your patrol division, what type of cameras you should buy, I would have to say for crime scene and for lab work, uh, certainly to look at the mirrorless, look at the digital SLR. The mirrorless cameras that are out there, uh, again, have uh, different lenses. I know Canon has an adapter, and Nikon has an adapter, but they are coming out with separate lenses. And if you're starting with something new, meaning that you're about to just build upon uh, your lab and, and go to a new format or, or whatever, then and you're starting from scratch, then this is something to look at. If you already have something there, if you already have Canon cameras, you already have Nikon cameras, then I would still look at the digital SLRs and possibly just a newer model because all your lenses, all your attachments, everything's still going to work with that. The mirrorless side, it seems still up in the air. I know the current version that Canon has, they've produced new lenses for it, and they have an adapter so you can use old lenses. However, on the newer body that I hear is coming out, it will be able to accept both older and newer lenses. I really feel that the mirrorless camera right now is sort of where the playground is for Canon and Nikon and Sony that this is where they're trying their new technology out and where they're really focusing their attention. Now, for your patrol cameras, I still would go with a point-and-shoot camera. A majority of what patrol is shooting can be handled with a point-and-shoot camera. Even though they could use their phones to take a majority of the photos that they're taking, that gets into the whole uh, legal problem of are you issuing them phones? Are they using their personal phone if they're issued phones it's really not that big of an issue because we know that our phones are always uh, subject uh, to subpoena to uh, open records and those type of things however if you use your personal phone for county or city business to take those type of photos that could make that phone just as eligible to be subpoenaed or have uh, be brought before the court to be analyzed and to get out the information. So it, it brings up a lot of headaches that uh, a lot of people don't want to deal with. And it's so much easier just to buy a point and shoot camera. Uh, they're relatively inexpensive, but perform very well using the same SD cards uh, that you use for the digital SLR. So uh, it's just become less expensive uh, to do that. And when you're talking about issuing them to a whole patrol division, even if that's not within your budgetary means, issuing a 
couple of patrol cameras or a couple of point and shoot cameras to supervisors or even just a few that are out there that maybe have gone through a little bit of training on what to shoot and to how to process those and and different things that uh, you could still meet your budgetary needs. The next most common question I get is, do I have to shoot everything in RAW? Once you learn about RAW and you realize the capability of it and how much information is there that you're capturing, do I have to shoot all my crime scene photos in RAW? And the answer to that is no. A majority of the crime scene photos that we take, our overall photos, our mid-range photos, our relationship photos between a piece of evidence and the rest of the scene can be shot in JPEG. We're not going to use those for comparative. We're not going to use those for analysis purposes. It mainly is just showing the overall scene of what what was there when we were processing the scene. The difference of when to shoot a raw photo and when to shoot a JPEG. When you want to shoot a raw photo is when you want to use it for comparative purposes or analytical purposes. If you ever plan on comparing what's in this photo to a real object, such as a tire impression, a shoe impression, a fingerprint, a palm print, anything that is going to be analyzed, you want to have the most information available that whenever you zoom in, whenever you process, whenever you do anything to enhance this photo, that you have all the information available for the examiner, whoever's going to be looking at this. If you plan on taking a mathematical calculation based on this photo, it needs to be shot in raw. So when you're doing blood stain and crime scene reconstruction, and you're going to be taking measurements such as shooting reconstruction, you need to be shooting in raw so that when that examiner zooms in, that there's enough detail that they are capable of taking those measurements and making those determinations based on those photos. So that's the general principle between when to shoot raw and when to shoot JPEG. The next question that comes out is, should I process every photo? Meaning, should I take every photo and put it into Photoshop or Lightroom or some type of photo editing program to enhance my photo and make it better? And again, that answer is no. A majority of the photos that we take with the camera, you've been taking for years, they turn out fine. Remember the question that we are gonna be answering on the stand. Is this a true and accurate representation of the scene as it was when you were there? For the most part, we don't need to brighten, create contrast, highlight anything on our scene. It's just overall photos. When we do need to enhance something is usually when again, it's one of our raw photos that we're gonna use for analytical purposes that we may need to sharpen, we may need to brighten. Those are the ones that we may work on. Even those we may not need to do that much to or do anything to. It's only if we need to enhance it in some way. And that term sometimes scares people as far as enhancing it, that we altered, that we did something. Well, we do that all the time when we are using chemical processing to enhance prints to make them come out and that we can analyze them or see them better. We do that with chemicals to uh, bring blood stains out. Uh, whenever we are fluorescing a scene with blue stars so we can find what's hidden. So we do the enhancement stuff all the time. And we've also done it for many years, even when we were talking about film. When you were in the photo lab, the fact of how long you exposed the picture or created contrast uh, with uh, 
different filters in the lab is no different. Now we're just doing it digitally. So it's something we've done. And the only thing that you have to do so that it could be used in court is you have to have your original image. You have to list whatever program you use to enhance it, the steps that you use to enhance it, and then your final image. That's pretty much been the standard of what's been accepted so that images that have been enhanced, altered in any way, can be evaluated whether they would be accepted in court. And for the most part, they have been accepted in court by following those standards. One of the things I'm gonna leave you with is something that I challenge all my students to continue practicing photography. And here's the way that I have them do that. Go to Michael's, go to Hobby Lobby, go someplace that sells some cheap frames and buy you three eight by tens or three five by seven frames. And the challenge to you is for you to replace the photos in those frames every month, every three months, whatever time frame you set for yourself. The purpose behind this is to get the photos off of your hard drive printed so that they can be looked at by others and you can narrow down what you want to do with them. If you've ever had somebody go into your office at work or maybe come into your house and you have photos up, what I've learned is it doesn't matter how many times they've been in your office, how many times they've been in your house, they always go and look at your photos. Even if it's the same ones they've seen over and over. I know so many people that have taken hundreds and hundreds of photos that sit on a hard drive somewhere. At some point they go back and they look at them, but they never actually narrow down and pick out a few that they really liked. And part of my digital process, not on crime scene, but on personal photos, when I import them into Lightroom, I go through and I pick the ones that I want to actually work on. The others may stay in the catalog, but I have ones that I specifically want to work on, and those are ones that I would print out later. So a couple of tips to you to do this. One, after every month, every three months, pick a couple of them out, print them out. The second thing I would tell you is a couple of places that I use that uh, are high-quality places to print. Uh, mpix.com is one that you can get all sorts of anything you've ever bought uh, from a, a school or a place that had some type of photo thing going on uh, they sell it there mpix.com uh, the other one is groupon if you go to groupon and you type canvas print metal print anything there's always a groupon going on these prints are close to $200 normally, and I've found them for uh, $40, $30. Uh, it's just another way to display your photos. I would certainly encourage you to do that. And the last thing to get better at photography, besides just practicing, is to share with other photographies, whether it's on Flickr, whether it's on a true photo site that will give you a critique, or whether it's someone who you shoot with at work that you can ask their opinion of the photo. Most of the time, people put them on social media, and for the most part, on social media, you're not gonna get the same critique as you're gonna get from another photographer. I hope you take time to shoot photos outside of work of things that are important to you 
that just like the boxes that I recently received from my parents to go through that brought back many memories, I hope that you're able to make many memories with your photos and that when you review them years later, that it brings back those moments to you. As Crime Scene Today starts the new year, we're going to be looking at uh, evaluating some cases that uh, we want to look at the forensic side of them. We also are going to be, of course, interviewing some subject matter experts, as we always do, and then just talking about some uh, issues that are currently in law enforcement in the news as we bring back some of our co-hosts that uh, have different uh, disciplines and different knowledge in specific areas to give their points of view on how things are progressing in the future of law enforcement. So if there's a show, if there's a topic that you would like to discuss, or if you would like to be on the show, then just contact me at dan at crimescenetoday.com. Thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you in the future.